All right, well, it looks like we can go ahead and get started. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, some weeks ago, who we uh, began the book of First Kings, and we had gotten through chapter 1. Simply to give a recap, this is at the, toward the end of David's life, and he is uh, basically bedridden at this point. And of course, his two sons uh, rise to prominence um, here, added Adinijah, ha, spent, I think, all that last period mispronouncing that. Hopefully that bug doesn't catch in my tongue again. And Adinijah or Adonijah, something like that. Um, and, of, and of course, what do we see from this son of David? He's going to set himself up as king in opposition um, to David's choice, which David's choice is a son of his with Bathsheba, Solomon. Well, those of us who are familiar with this story know how it goes. And in... Uh, there's so much fun here because there's so much parale parallelism between this account and the account of Samuel. Um, but you have Nathan who, of course, uh, came and uh, addressed his sin, David's sin with Bathsheba directly. So you have Nathan showing up again with Bathsheba and now uh, with Solomon, of course, the, the son of their fornication, so to speak, perished as a temporal consequence of David's sin. as a punishment to David. And so here now, Solomon... And uh, basically, basically, the bulk and meat of chapter 1 is uh, this episode in which David affirms his choice of Solomon as king. And one of the key images from this chapter is King David having Solomon ride on his mule, which of course then echoes into Christ entering Jerusalem, the city of David, entering Jerus Jerusalem. Um, the city of David sometimes is Beth referred to as Bethlehem, um, sometimes Jerusalem. Here, Jerusalem, as we will see. Uh, so just as, just as Solomon rides uh, the, this mule, um, we see Jesus riding the mule. So a close connection here with David's son. Of course, Jesus is going to be the son of David, David's son, but also David's Lord. As a son of David, Jesus will reign and be the king supreme. And of course, this is the son of David reigning immediately after David. So Solomon is very much a type of Christ. Um, and we'll see in which ways he's positive and which ways he's negative, of course, as with all types. But uh, where we see Solomon, we want to always ask ourselves, in what way does this show forth Christ? All right. Well, they have, they have 
Solomon not only ride the donkey, but then he is anointed. And of course, uh, received on the throne of David. And so he's actually sitting on David's throne and David bows to him. And this is, this is a done deal. This is a done deal now. So all of, uh, all of Adonijah's attempts to be king and sort of gather prominent people around him, gather the support of the people, really fall flat and fail at this point. Adonijah realizes this, and so right at the close of chapter 1, verses 49 and following, he flees, he grabs hold of the horns of the altar. This, as far as we know, would be the, the tabernacle yet at this point, because the temple hasn't been built, and the horns of the altar would be the altar external to the tabernacle grabs a hold of the horns of the altar. The study note points out that um, one who is guilty of unintentional manslaughter could flee for refuge to the altar. Um, it, and then it gives a reference in Exodus chapter 21 for that. The editors note, apparently this applied to other crimes punishable by death. If it doesn't, we have no idea what he was doing or why he thought that that, that would grant him mercy, but his ploy works. He grasps hold of the horns of the altar and you'll see why here in a moment I call it a ploy. Uh, and, and Solomon has mercy on him. Uh, much like, much following in the footsteps of David. David had mercy on his enemies. Uh, Solomon here, following in the footsteps, has mercy on Adonijah. And uh, that takes us through uh, what we had covered in chapter 1. So now into the new material of chapter 2. Any questions or comments? Um, Anything, anything major I left out, that's certainly a possibility. All right. Then let us simply walk into chapter 2. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Ah, this section has, has two of my favorite lines from King David. Isn't that a great way of putting it? I'm about to go the way of all the earth. All the earth is going to perish. Only the, only the word of the Lord endures forever. Such a, such a beautiful statement. I've got to try to remember that. Hopefully when I get on my deathbed, I'll be able to say this to my, my children. It's great. Okay, so, so gosh, this is such a beautiful statement. Beautiful statement he hands down to his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. I love this because we've lost, we've lost this. You know, as evolution has presented for us this reality that to be a man is really just to be a beast. It's really just to be an animal. It almost becomes meaningless. Be a man would be to like follow your baser instincts. <laughs> you know, uh, but what does it mean to be a man and to show oneself a man? To be a man is something to be aspired to. And that bespeaks this deeper reality that we are being made into the image of God. Man in the image of God, we are being made into the man, capital M. God become man in Christ Jesus. And so we aspire toward that. And, and this is just an ancient way. It's not even exclusive to the Hebrew scriptures or to a Christian worldview, but 
This is, the, this is the ancient way of viewing what it means to be a man. It's something to be aspired to. So we even get our word virtue um, from the word vir in Latin, which is man. So virtue is to be manly, manful, in, in a completely positive sense. In a completely positive sense. Can you, see, can you see how preferable that is to where we are today? Oh, what does it mean to be manful today? And if you're in your, if you're in your teens or your 20-somethings, it probably means to wear a dress. <laughs> probably means to act effeminate. Yes, it's a disaster. You can see how we've turned this all on its head. So these are, these are beautiful words and a call to recovering these, these ancient things, to, to act manfully. Show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. Here, David offends all of the radical Lutherans in one fell swoop. Just look at his emphasis on, I mean, you can't get away, statutes, commandments, rules, testimonies, and law. It's all there. And this is what, this is what David beautifully hands down to, to Solomon. This is what makes for a man to be after the image of God and in conformity with his will. <clears throat> that you may prosper in all that you do, wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David continues, Moreover, you also know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. All right. So, of course, this isn't the only instance. This is the instance cited here. I think this is important. This isn't the only instance. Joab did a lot of things that he wasn't supposed to do that were contrary, just exacting revenge and taking matters into his own hands. And it's part of the complexity, of course, of, of uh, the Samuel narrative because we see David's weakness and inactivity and everything else too. But remember when um, David, David wanted mercy for Absalom. And wasn't it Joab that saw to it that Absalom got two spears through his heart? I think so. Uh, Joab was very indicative of his cruelty, indicative of his willingness to violate a, a direct command from the king. And here, though, not cited because David isn't about personal vengeance in this moment. He is handing over the office of king, and he's saying, look, these are, these are effectively enemies of the state that I haven't yet dealt with. And they need, to be, they need to be dealt with. The first of these is Joab, and the next of, of these is Shammai, which we'll see. Okay. 
So he reminds him of this, of this crime, of this injustice committed. Let me grab the study note for the reference if I can here. Mm. I don't know why I didn't mark that. Looks like that is... Well, the study note for verses 5 through 9 says David's general admonition, similar to, yeah, similar to God's charge to Joshua. However, David's orders against Joab and Shammai are difficult to reconcile with the covenant. I don't know about that. His instruction, because I think, I, I mean, his inaction is difficult to reckon, reconcile with the covenant. I think what he's doing here is a political thing. It's only hard to reconcile if it's viewed as a personal thing. His instructions to execute the cold-blooded murder murderer of Abner and Amasa can be explained in as much as um, the curse of blood guilt needed to be removed. Okay, fine. I just thought we were going to get a nice, easy reference to, I think it's Second Samuel. Yeah, there it is. Just in the, in the center column, you can find references to these things. Okay, um, so you can cross-reference that if you want to go looking for to refresh your memory on that particular episode. All right, what does he say then? Verse 6, Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Oh, is that another great line? It's like the Hebrew version of Schwarzenegger, you know. I hope to use the line, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I hope not to use the line. <laughs> Don't let his great head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. So kindness towards Barzillai. The eating at your table is an interesting thing too, especially in regard to table fellowship in Luke's gospel and ultimately Christ's supper. To eat at the table of the king is, uh, I mean, you can't have a higher honor. And so we see a type and a foreshadow of the Lord's supper where he invites us to eat at his table and, and we eat with the everlasting king each and every Lord's day. Could you, could you imagine actually believing that, that, that Jesus is there on Sunday morning and the table of the king is set and he's invited you, but you're not going to be there because you've got something more important to do. Oh. Oh. But isn't that the reality of divine service? He is there. He has invited. He's calling. He sets before us the gifts of Forgiveness, life, and salvation, the new covenant, his body and blood, bread of immortality, cup of everlasting joy, and he calls us to the table fellowship of the everlasting king. We're like, yeah, I might, I might get an early tea time. I might sleep in or watch a rerun. Oh, man, how impoverished are we? How blind and dark. Okay, so when we see this table fellowship, we're reminded of our Lord's table. All right, so Joab's got to get dealt with. Barzillai gets peace. Now we're on to verse 8. 
And there is also with you Shemaiah the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with, the, with blood to Sheol. So there's another variation on the theme there. Well, the study notes spend a lot of time wrangling about how, how he's, you know, David might be breaking his code here. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. He, breaking his word and his promise to be merciful to them. I don't know about that. Because there's other ways to consider it, right? Yeah. David is dead, and everything says that one something died. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the argument you're making is, is David is dead, and this was a grace extended to these people, but they still have pro- shown themselves enemies to the, uh, to the throne. And so when the new king takes over, there's, there's guilt and culpability there. I don't know. I just, I mean, may, maybe David does, but I just don't, I don't share the sense of needing to... Yeah, well, okay, so whatever you want to make of it, these three folks, uh, bad news for Joab and Shammai, good news for Barzillai, but uh, David passes this on to Solomon. And so, so what we're going to see is Solomon, Solomon um, deal with this then. All right, that takes us to uh, verse 10. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. This was the, one of the references I'm referring to. Um, the city of David in this case is Jerusalem. And the, and the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. Of course, those are biblically uh, loaded numbers and, symbolical, and symbolic numbers. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. They actually co-reigned for a while then. I mean, Solomon was the acting king. As we said, David was not. He was uh, more or less bedridden. But there is overlap there. And, and in some instances, I mean, I don't know where you'd run across this. But in some instances, it's hard to reconcile the dating and the, and the succession of events with how did that work if the kingdom had been handed over? This idea that they had overlapping kingdoms for a time really helps to resolve uh, a number of those issues. All right, well, that is a significant, significant event and a significant ending of uh, one, of the, uh, one of the scriptures most prominent characters and, and main, main personalities of biblical history, uh, David. David. Okay, verse 13 of chapter 2. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. 
Why doesn't he go to Solomon? Do you think? <laughs> yeah, he's up to no good. He's up to no good. Yeah, if he's, if he's going to act um, and show himself as a man, um, he should just simply go, go directly to Solomon with his request. But he doesn't. He decides to go to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And, he said, and, and she said, do you come peacefully? And he said, peacefully, which is kind of a lie. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, speak. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine. Does she know that? <laughs> you know that the kingdom was mine. I mean, this is pretty snakish. And that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And I'm not sure we necessarily see that as pious. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Okay, well, who is Abishag the Shunammite? Well, at the very beginning of, of 1 Kings, Abishag the Shunammite is the, is the virgin girl who keeps David warm. They don't, um, as we read in, in verse uh, 4 of chapter 1, um, the king knew her not, okay? But um, this was her role. She surfaces again in chapter 1, verse 15, so Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. So she keeps surfacing in the narrative and now we see why. Now we see why. So his request is for Abishag the Shunammite. You know why? Because this is, this is the ancient world, as we're going to see, arranges are, uh, mar marriages are, are largely arranged marriages, and they're political in nature. Um, it's not like he just says, you know, it's not like a Hallmark movie or something where he was just struck by, you know, Abishag and, you know. But isn't he supposed to marry a Hebrew? Why is he going with a Shunammite? Yeah, the question is, why is he going with a Shunammite? Why does he want the Shunammite that was so close to David? I mean, none of David's other wives or women are mentioned at this point except for her. There's a lot of questions. Why is he going to mom instead of his brother, you know, or Solomon? Lots of questions here. Lots of questions. Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. By the way, you're probably already aware, but if not, you should be aware, um, because there's, there's some dynamics here that are really interesting, as we're going to see. Uh, we've already said that Solomon is a type of Christ, which would make, which would make Bathsheba a type of Mary. Yeah. 
And the Roman Catholics love this. They love this because they want to see they want to see Mary enthroned with Jesus. Um, and there's a proper way of, of seeing that. I mean, who knows? Maybe Mary does sit at the right hand of Jesus. We don't have any biblical proof for that. Um, we do see Mary presented as kind of a queen and as an icon of the church in Revelation 12, where she's uh, crowned with the stars and this kind of thing, has the moon under her feet. Okay. So there's a very positive way. There's a very positive way we can connect this typology um, to and, and compare it with Jesus and, and Mary positively and um, see the great honor given to Bathsheba on account of Solomon and see the great honor given to Mary on account of Jesus, etc. All right, so there's lots of, I, I, in other words, we don't want to whitewash this and say just because the Roman Catholics abuse it, we ought to not, you know, take, take what's right about it. So we need to take what's right about it. But, of course, they see this as the intercession of, of Mary and why we ought to pray to Mary and then Mary will bring our requests to Jesus, which is all quite humorous because Solomon, as you'll see, says, no. <laughs> which kind of ruins the typology if you're, if you're working this in a Roman Catholic way. Anyway, a bit of a digression there, but I wanted you to be aware of some of, some of the usage and proper and improper of this text. I mean, if anything, what would this what would this show you? Don't go to Mary, go to you, lest you be like Adonijah. Go directly to Jesus, which is what Adonijah should have done: has gone directly to Solomon. Of course, he doesn't want to go directly to Solomon because he knows that Solomon's gonna gonna sniff this out. So he hopes to use use Bathsheba as a shield and subterfuge. All right. Well, verse nineteen. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. I mean, again, kind of glorious and beautiful in terms of just a typology and a general picture of the way that Solomon's mother is honored by Solomon, Christ's mother is honored by Christ. I mean, again, there's just absolutely nothing wrong with that, as long as we don't go off the deep end. Verse 20, Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him for the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. All right, well, this goes back to, back to chapter 1 and the prominent figures that were aligned with Adonijah. Now, we don't know exactly why uh, Solomon is able to, to see this and, and see exactly what he's trying to do. But suffice it to say, Bathsheba doesn't really see this as a threat. Solomon most certainly sees it as a threat. So what exactly the dynamics and nature of that? Is it just proximity? Is it someone who had the king's ear and might still have the king's ear? Um, is it just 
connection with the royal court, so to speak. I mean, again, all of this is speculative. We don't know. But one thing we do know, Bathsheba doesn't see it. Solomon does. There are some interesting connections, very subtle, I think, but there are some interesting connections. Um, in the same way we were talking about uh, Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, and Solomon, and Mary, and Christ, you can also kind of see an, an Adam and an Eve dynamic here. Again, I think I would argue more subtly, even more subtly. But, um, yeah, the serpent, Adonijah in this case, comes to deceive the woman, and the woman you know, give some for the man to eat. In this case, the man says, no. <laughs> um, and, and there are some subtle flavorings, here, as we're going to look at, just very subtle allusions, because we're going to talk about Solomon, and of course he's known to be wise, and part of that wisdom is being able to discern between good and evil, and that takes us back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and this kind of thing. So there are some allusions. I just think they're quite subtle. They're quite subtle. All right, verse 23. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me and more also if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. So Solomon's a little miffed, not only at the, but at the attempt of turning his mom against him too and using his mom against him. So it, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. Verse 20 is all sweet. Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. <laughs> Point three seconds later, that guy's going to die today. <laughs> All right, verse 24. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father. Now, this is actually really, really important insight because we saw the faith of David. Going back a little earlier, we see the distinct lack of faith and the cynicism of Saul. The faith then of David. We're at 1-1 if you put him in the columns. You know, good king, bad king. Saul, bad king. David, good king. What kind of king is Solomon going to be? So this is kind of heightened at this point. And, and so these words are very important because they show Solomon aligning himself with the faith of David. Now, if you know about Solomon, you know that down the line that changes and we're even going to get hints of that very, very soon in the text. But, but be that as it may, we see Solomon aligned with the faith of David. We see Solomon seeing his own kingship, not as something he's earned or deserved, or, but rather given to him by the Lord. And that then is the basis. He doesn't view Adonijah as attacking him personally. He views Adonijah as attacking what the Lord has done, attacking the anointing of the Lord. All right. Yeah, boy. I'll keep that thought. Um, all right, so there's 24. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. I mean, this really is office and politics and, I mean, I guess it's office and church too, 
But the idea of honoring an office, and here the king is upholding the office and the one whom God has anointed, uh, this is really not personal. It's not a personal argument that he's making. God has, God has chosen, I mean, he's being as impartial as he can. I mean, God has chosen me. It's his choice. It's his choice that I'm defending. It's really a, really a fascinating section. All right, verse 25. So King Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. Now, Benaiah has already been this really awesome guy. I think Chronicles tells us how he snatches the weapon away from some other fully armed guy and kills him with his own weapon. And Benaiah has led the, led the battle. And now Benaiah just has to, he has to really do some dirty work that David should have already done. And so we see him um, quite active and emerges, emerges um, certainly a peer of Joab in the way that Joab struck terror in people's hearts. Uh, Benaiah now, it's his time to shine. So uh, Benaiah goes and strikes Adonijah, and that's the end of that. So Adonijah is really you know, the main, the main antagonist uh, in the narrative thus far, and now he's, he's put away. Okay, verse 26. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death. So what's, what's now happening? What's now happening? Solomon is really already showing himself to be extremely wise. Because he sees through Adonijah's plot, and he knows that his conspirators are still active. And so now he's dealing with them. So Abiathar, one of the, the conspirators who's, who's behind this, he basically uh, puts in, in kind of stay-at-home prison here. Go to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. Yeah, that's true. Abiathar was with him in the Absalom thing, but he turned against him for the Adonijah episode. Verse 27, So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. What's that a reference to? All the way back to uh, 1 Samuel at the very beginning, and you remember how, how Eli, because of his wickedness, God says, your reign is going to be, you know, your service is going to be at an end. And so here, here Abiathar is in the line of Eli, and so this furthermore fulfills uh, the house of Eli being cut off from the priesthood. The study note on verse 27 puts it this way, Abiathar was a descendant of Eli, for whose house a prophet had predicted disaster. Abiathar's descendants were later permitted to resume service at the temple, according to 1 Chronicles 24, 6. All right. So we've got the would-be king 
and his priest dealt with, and now we need to go after uh, the guy who would be swinging the sword on his behalf. And there's also this this kind of loose end, this loose end with David wanting uh, Joab and Shammai dealt with. So lo and behold, they come up next. This is kind of Solomon's moment to clean house. Verse 28, when the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom. Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and cut hold of the horns of the altar. So now Joab does this. And when it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, Do as he has said, strike him down and bury him. And thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in place of Abiathar. All right. There's a lot packed in there. There's a lot packed in there. But it's all straightforward enough, so I'm inclined to not make much commentary. I mean, in one sense, you can view this politically. This is, he's, he's just installed his own cabinet. <laughs> um, he's, he's executed capital punishment for crimes, residual crimes that had been. Uh, he's taken care of this conspiracy um, that Adonijah had planned. Um, and he's, he's setting things right. Uh, of course, maybe tilting a little more into the theological, Joab is a complex character, but overall he's just a man of blood and violence. And so he, in the moment where he wants peace, he gets blood and violence. I mean, there's, there's a sort of, even if, it's, even if it's shocking, there's a sort of poetic justice to it. It's, it's probably even more, it's probably even more than, I mean, imagine some strange world where he ran into our sanctuary and was holding on to the, holding on to the altar. And Benaiah says to the king, you know, what do you want me to do? And he's, whack him. And he goes in and cuts him down right there. I mean, that's, that's probably the closest we could get to conceiving. I mean, it's quite shocking. It's quite shocking. But 
but there's no shame in it. I mean, this isn't a, this isn't a political hit. This isn't a personal murder. Um, this is the judgment of God, and it doesn't matter. I mean, in effect, Solomon's, Solomon's rhetoric is, hey, all the better that it happens in the house of the Lord. The Lord's the one that's bringing um, his own blood on his, or the blood of these innocents that he's killed upon his head. You know, this is justice. So a little bit shocking, a little bit shocking to our, our, our sensibilities here, but, um, and, you know, also then just in terms of, like, the drama of the narrative, Joab is a major, major character, a complex character. He's been with us forever, and now he's, now he's gone. So we are also starting a, a very much a new phase in terms of narrative, overarching telling of this history. All right, on to uh, Shammai. I think the last, yeah, the last of the loose ends to tie up here. Verse 36, then the king sent and summoned Shammai and said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there to any place whatever. Isn't this interesting? So Solomon calls this enemy of his, says, you're going to be in my city. Uh, you know, you keep your, your friends close and your enemies closer. You're going to be under my direct surveillance, build a city, you're staying, and then he basically puts him in home, on home arrest. You know, you're going to do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. Look, I'm giving you this mercy, this is, but this is what it looks like. This is the shape of that mercy. And if you break and violate it, um, then look, it's your own doing. Your, your blood's on your own head. And Shammai said to the king, what you say is good. Well, he didn't exactly have much of a choice, did he? <laughs> As my Lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shammai lived in Jerusalem many days. But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shammai's servants ran away to Achish, son of Makkah, king of Gath. And when it was told Shammai, behold, your servants are in Gath, Shammai arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. Shammai went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shammai had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shammai and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place whatever, you shall die. And you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment with which I commanded you? The king also said to Shammai, You know in your own heart all the harm that you did to David my father. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord Forever, And there's, again, this is direct prophetic testimony. When we think of the three-dimensional nature of the scriptures and that they're all ultimately about Christ, every time we see the throne of David forever, we see that fulfilled in Christ Jesus reigning 
present tense and forever. Okay, so with that aside, then kind of dropping back down into the into the history and the narrative itself. Look, your your house has come to an end. You were you were evil to David, who was good to you, and and now that injustice is going to be reversed. Justice is going to be meted out. Verse 46, Then the king commanded Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And that really, in terms of narrative structure, in terms of driving the story, in terms of sort of a, a thematic reset, uh, that line, that line, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon, really shows the intent and purpose. We've come to a, we've come to a close and a change of, of the guard and a change of the chapter. Yeah, so Benaiah becomes a real busy guy there for a while, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. All right, any thoughts you have? Any thoughts you have on... Um, Chapter 2. All right. Well, let's get a little way into uh, 3. I doubt we'll finish it, but we'll see how we, how we do. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord, and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. All right. Well, and then, okay, just do this. Verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. Okay, that's, that's enough. That's enough. In these, in these first two verses, there's a lot of foreshadowing. There's nothing explicitly wrong, but as we know how the story develops, there's some foreshadowing nonetheless. The fact that, that Solomon makes a marriage alliance with Pharaoh um, has less to do with, as if this was some violation of God's law. This is what kings do. They contract marriages. These are business agreements and political agreements. And um, really more what this shows is his, uh, his power. Pharaoh is a world power, and Solomon... You know, David, David gave, the kingdom thrived under David, but it was constant, continual warfare and bloodshed and fighting and, you know, trying to retain your borders, trying to put down enemies. What this really begins to show is that under Solomon, the kingdom th- flourishes like it does at no other time and is established like it does at no other, it is at no other time. That's the main point. Of course there is. Of course there is a hint of foreshadowing in that he's got this Egyptian wife, this pagan wife. You see he's got to build his own house. That's fine. He's going to build the house of the Lord. Uh, David wanted to. The Lord said no. Um, Solomon will build it. So now Solomon's going to build it. And he's going to put a wall around Jerusalem. I mean, all of this showing the, the prosperity that is going to come to Solomon and through Solomon to the people. Now, also then with verse 2, the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Um, that means that no, no temple had been established yet. 
so they were on the high places. But there's a bit of a hint there, too. High places in the scriptures doesn't always mean idolatry, but more often than not, it does. And the kind of idolatry that is rampant throughout Israel's time is the kind where they're, where they're doing idolatry either alongside of the name of Yahweh or sometimes under the name of Yahweh. There's always this mixture of, hey, we're really worshiping Yahweh. Uh, we just happen to be worshiping this other God, too. Or we're really worshiping Yahweh. See, we're using the name Yahweh all the time. Well, who is Yahweh? And then the description is some pagan God, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's this kind of thing. So, so I, think, I think just as with verse 1, it's really trying to establish sort of a a political foundation, and, and here it's trying to bring us up to speed in terms of the religious foundation. You, you kind of have, remember the, uh, the two kingdoms, you kind of have the right-hand kingdom and the left-hand kingdom. They're, the left-hand kingdom being the, the civics, that's sort of verse one. The right-hand kingdom being the spiritual affair. That's, and so these two kingdoms, like how does it look? That's kind of what we're getting. But we have foreshadowing, very, very beautifully, wonderfully stuck in these verses. All right, and then, and then, we're not there yet, though. We're not yet there yet, because the, the story, as we've seen so far, Solomon is, Solomon is everything David was, and, and maybe more. Verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is a profound verse to meditate on. It really is, to really try to wrap your mind around. Because it's got some very, very hard things hidden in it. Solomon loved the Lord. But he was an idolater. How do you reconcile those two statements? I mean, there's just so much to take in there. And it's, it's kind of true, it's kind of true of the, of the nature of sin itself. How can, how can we, each one of us individually, how can, how can we love the Lord, which we do, but then also sin against him? And you simply bring that to a head of, how can I have God as my God and yet have another God? It's the insanity of sin. It's the insanity of our sinful condition. But the author's not lying. I mean, he, he shouldn't have written, Solomon pretended to love the Lord, or Solomon really hated the Lord. Um, he shouldn't have written that. He speaks the truth. Solomon loved the Lord, and yet here is this glaring hypocrisy, this glaring contradiction. And then, and then what follows, of course, what follows, of course, is uh, God being very gracious to Solomon. So I, overall, overall, as I think on this and consider this verse, it's like so many of the other places in the scriptures where you see that the saints of old, and who on earth could be better than Solomon? Who on earth could be better than Solomon? And yet, and yet he had this just foundational, fundamental, elementary contradiction at the heart of his spirituality at the heart of his soul. But God is, God is gracious to him and merciful to him and forgives him and blesses him and makes atonement for him. And this is, um, 
That's just one of the great comforts in reading the Old Testament scriptures where the saints are not, I mean, the saints are sinners. What are you going to say? They're not perfect. And yet, and God doesn't turn his back on them. I mean, to be sure, God has his breaking point, to put it anthropomorphically. God has his breaking point. He has this point in which he says, okay, well, that's that. Um, But he is indeed slow to anger and abounding in abounding in love and mercy. Okay, well, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. I mean, that's what's so bizarre about this text. The high places, like not inherently evil to be worshiping at the high places, though there's certainly connotation there. And here he is offering on the high places and the high place at Gibeon. And all of this is kind of a shadow cast upon it. And then look, the Lord appears to him in a dream by night. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't say clean it up. he He doesn't say all the typical things we'd expect him to say. He says, ask what I shall give you. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible grace and mercy. This is, what, this is what, we, uh, what we have to meditate on when we think of the goodness of God. That, God. that God's goodness excels anything we can imagine. And it really, it really just... Um, yeah. Yeah, the goodness of God. It, I mean, it shows your wickedness in a different light, and it shows his goodness in a different light. It's not to take away from the, his justice or his righteousness or his setting things right. His call to repentance and his gracious forgiveness, his blood atonement at the center of all of that. It's not to take anything away from that at all, in the least. I mean, that's sort of the, that's the mechanics of how it is that he's this way. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So it's almost like in our own lives, if we continue to allow it, it gets bigger and bigger, and we lose blessings, and we create problems. Mm, so. mm, good point, good point. Yeah, and, then, and I think the narrative can be read that way, that, that what you see here is um, almost, almost like the seed of idolatry and God being gracious, but if that seed continues to be watered and nurtured and he continues on in his sin, that sin grows bigger and bigger and unmanageable until the goodness and love of God has to say, hey, yeah, yeah, it's true, it's true. Well, there's just so much here to to meditate on. I mean, these are tongue-in-cheek. These are deceptive texts because, again, they they show them, I mean, they they make, they give the appearance of, hey, it's just just history. (laughs) And And then you read a verse or two and you go, Okay, there's a lot more to wrestle with than, you know, historical facts. There's a lot more to think about, contemplate. All right, well, I'm sorry to run us off the rails there. All right, so God, God gives him this unprecedented, this unprecedented thing. Ask what I shall give you. 
And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father, or to my, yeah, to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. Did David? Yeah, he kind of did. I mean, he kind of did. Nobody's perfect. But he always repented. Yeah, I, I mean, what's interesting to me, too, having been sort of raised in Lutheranism, is what's interesting to me is God doesn't say, no, he didn't. He was a sinner. He was a poor, miserable sinner. He utterly failed to keep my statutes. He utterly failed to walk before me in faithfulness. You know, that's just, God doesn't rebuke this. In a sen- and, and just reading the narrative straight up, in a sense he did. Of course he failed. But in a sense, his life is characterized. David's life is characterized of walking before God in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart. And I think that that's what we strive and aspire toward. We know that we can't be perfect. We know that we botch it all the time. We don't need to do anything but look back on our lives to see how deeply we've botched this. But at the same time, wouldn't you want it to be generally said of you at the end of your life that this, this, is, this is generally true of your life, that, you, that like David, you walked before God in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward him? It'd be wonderful. Um, Still in the middle of uh, verse 6. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. Ha, at this time, I mean, this, this is the humility, um, because at this time he actually has his own child. Uh, so, so to say, to refer to himself before God as a little child, you see the great humility of Solomon. Great eloquence, great spiritual insight, great humility. I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Gosh, isn't that true? Isn't that true? And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. In other words, what's he saying? I'm not up for the task. I'm a child. I don't know whether to do this or that. I have no way of figuring it out. The people are, are great. That is a, a huge multitude. How am I as one man supposed to, supposed to lead them? Verse 9, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. And here's a, here's a loaded phrase that we'll, we'll have to delve into next week. Give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. There's the hint in the, that we were talking about, the very subtle illusion that maybe goes back to Genesis somewhat. But he wants an understanding mind that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people. Maybe just one comment in closing. So God says, what do you want? Does he ask for something just for him? Does he say, how about, a, how about that real fast racing camel? No. I, you know, how, about, how about incredible... Incredible beauty, you know. No. 
he asks for a gift that will then be immediately used in service of God's people. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. All right, well, let's, let's delve into the language and the study note on verse 9 of chapter 3 this next week and really get into that and really kind of contemplate and take in what it is that Solomon's asking, and then we'll see more fully what it is that he receives. The Lord be with you.